Chapter Twenty Four, Section Five of Capital, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gazina. Capital, Critical Analysis of Capitalist Production, Volume One by Karl Marx. Translated from the third German edition by Samuel Moore and Edward Aveling, and edited by Frederick Engels. Part seven The Accumulation of Capital Chapter twenty four Conversion of Surplus Value into Capital Section five The So called Labor Fund It has been shown in the course of this inquiry that capital is not a fixed magnitude but is a part of social wealth, elastic and constantly fluctuating, with a division of fresh surplus value into revenue and additional capital. It has been seen further that, even with a given magnitude of functioning capital, the labour power, the science, and the land, by which are to be understood, economically, all conditions of labour furnished by nature, independently of man, embodied in it, form elastic powers of capital, allowing it, within certain limits, a field of action independent of its own magnitude. In this inquiry we have neglected all effects of the process of circulation, effects which may produce very different degrees of efficiency in the same mass of capital. And as we presuppose the limits set by capitalist production that is to say, presupposed the process of social production in a form developed by purely spontaneous growth. We neglected any more rational combination, directly and systematically practicable with the means of production, and the mass of labour power at present disposable. Classical economy always loved to conceive social capital as a fixed magnitude of a fixed degree of efficiency but this prejudice was first established as a dogma by the arch-philistine Jeremy Bentham, that insipid, pedantic, leather-tongued oracle of the ordinary bourgeois intelligence of the nineteenth century. Footnote. Compare, among others, Jeremy Bentham, Théorie des peines et des récompenses, Traduction d'édition du Mont, troisième édition, Paris, 1826. T two L four chapter two End footnote Bentham is among philosophers what Martin Tupper is among poets. Both could only have been manufactured in England. Footnote Bentham is a purely English phenomenon, not even excepting our philosopher, Christian Wolf, in no time and in no country has the most homespun commonplace ever strutted about in so self-satisfied a way. The principle of utility was no discovery of Bentham. He simply reproduced in his dull way what Helvetius and other Frenchmen had said with esprit in the eighteenth century. To know what is useful for a dog, one must study dog nature. This nature itself is not to be deduced from the principle of utility. Applying this to man, he that would criticise all human acts, movements, relations, etc., by the principle of utility, 
must first deal with human nature in general, and then with human nature as modified in each historical epoch. Bentham makes short work of it. With the driest naivete, he takes the modern shopkeeper, especially the English shopkeeper, as the normal man. Whatever is useful to this queer normal man, and to his world, is absolutely useful. This yard measure, then, he applies to past, present, and future. The Christian religion, for example, is useful, quote, because it forbids in the name of religion the same faults that the penal code condemns in the name of the law, unquote. Artistic criticism is harmful, because it disturbs worthy people in their enjoyment of Martin Tupper, etc. With such rubbish has the brave fellow, with his motto, Nuila dies sine line, piled up mountains of books. Had I the courage of my friend Heinrich Heine, I should call Mr. Jeremy a genius in the way of bourgeois stupidity. End of footnote. In the light of his dogma, the commonest phenomena of the process of production, as, for example, its sudden expansions and contractions, nay, even accumulation itself, become perfectly inconceivable. Footnote. Quote, Political economists are too apt to consider a certain quantity of capital and a certain number of labourers as productive instruments of uniform power, or operating with a certain uniform intensity. Those who maintain that commodities are the sole agents of production prove that production could never be enlarged, for it requires, as an indispensable condition to such an enlargement, that food, raw materials, and tools should be previously augmented, which is, in fact, maintaining that no increase of production can take place without a previous increase, or, in other words, that an increase is impossible. Unquote. S. Bailey, Money and its Vicissitudes, pages 58 and 70. Bailey criticizes the dogma mainly from the point of view of the process of circulation. End of footnote. The dogma was used by Bentham himself, as well as by Malthus, James Mill, McCulloch, etc., for an apologetic purpose, and especially in order to represent one part of capital, namely variable capital, or that part convertible into labor power, as a fixed magnitude. The material of variable capital, that is, the mass of the means of subsistence it represents for the labourer, or the so-called labour fund, was fabled as a separate part of social wealth, fixed by natural laws and unchangeable. To set in motion the part of social wealth which is to function as constant capital, or, to express it in a material form, as means of production, a definite mass of living labour is required. This mass is given technologically. But neither is the number of labourers required to render fluid this mass of labour power given. It changes with the degree of exploitation of the individual labour power. Nor is the price of this labour power given, but only its minimum limit, which is moreover very variable. The facts that lie at the bottom of this dogma are these. On the one hand, the labourer has no right to interfere in the division of social wealth into means of enjoyment for the non-labourer 
and means of production. Footnote. John Stuart Mill, in his Principles of Political Economy, says, quote, The really exhausting and the really repulsive labours, instead of being better paid than others, are almost invariably paid the worst of all. The more revolting the occupation, the more certain it is to receive the minimum of remuneration. The hardships and the earning, instead of being directly proportional, as in any just arrangements of society they would be, are generally in an inverse ratio to one another. Unquote. To avoid misunderstanding, let me say that although men like John Stuart Mill are to blame for the contradiction between their traditional economic dogmas and their modern tendencies, it would be very wrong to class with them the herd of vulgar economic apologists. End of footnote. On the other hand, only in favourable and exceptional cases has he the power to enlarge the so-called labour fund at the expense of the revenue of the wealthy. What silly tautology results from the attempt to represent the capitalistic limits of the labour fund as its natural and social limits may be seen, for example, in Professor Fawcett. Footnote H. Fawcett, Professor of Political Economy at Cambridge The Economic Position of the British Labourer London, 1865, page 120. End of footnote. Quote, the circulating capital of a country, he says, is its wage fund. Hence, if we desire to calculate the average money wages received by each labourer, we have simply to divide the amount of this capital by the number of the labouring population. Unquote. Footnote. I must here remind the reader that the categories variable and constant capital were first used by me. Political economy since the time of Adam Smith has confusedly mixed up the essential distinctions involved in these categories with the mere formal differences arising out of the process of circulation of fixed and circulating capital. For further details on this point, see Book 2, Part 2. End of footnote. That is to say, we first add together the individual wages actually paid, and then we affirm that the sum thus obtained forms the social value of the labour fund determined and vouchsafed to us by God and nature. Lastly, we divide the sum thus obtained by the number of labourers to find out again how much may come to each on the average. An uncommonly knowing dodge, this. It did not prevent Mr. Fawcett saying in the same breath, quote, The aggregate wealth which is annually saved in England is divided into two portions. One portion is employed as capital to maintain our industry, and the other portion is exported to foreign countries. Only a portion, and perhaps not a large portion, of the wealth which is annually saved in this country is invested in our own industry. Unquote. Footnote Fawcett, first chapter, pages one hundred and twenty two, one hundred and twenty three. End of footnote. The greater part of the yearly accruing surplus product, embezzled, because abstracted without return of an equivalent, from the English labourer, 
is thus used as capital not in England, but in foreign countries. But with the additional capital thus exported, as part of the labor fund, invented by God and Bentham, is also exported. Footnote. It might be said that not only capital, but also laborers, in the shape of emigrants, are annually exported from England. In the text, however, there is no question of the peculium of the emigrants, who are in great part not laborers. The sons of farmers make up a great part of them. The additional capital annually transported abroad to be put out at interest is in much greater proportion to the annual accumulation than the yearly emigration is to the yearly increase of population. End of footnote. End of part 7, chapter 24, section 5.